0: You know, one of the amazing things about the Bible is the way that it all fits together. The way that the uh, 66 different books of the Bible all tell the one story. The way that uh, one part of Scripture helps us to understand another. For example, in Titus chapter 3, we read, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. And if you're not really sure what that verse means, then we find it beautifully illustrated in the miracle recorded here in John chapter 5. The mercy of God links these two chapters together. For God's mercy, we're told in Titus chapter 3, is the thing that saves us. And it was God's mercy that saved this paralyzed man the pool of bethesda which actually means house of mercy so tonight i want us to have a on a closer look at this miracle here in john chapter 5 and see how the mercy of god saves people who cannot save themselves firstly i want us to consider the circumstances here in John chapter 5. The circumstances around this miracle. Which are recorded. Those circumstances are recorded in the first five verses. Verse 1 identifies the time of the miracle. It tells us that it was a feast of the Jews. Although it doesn't tell us which particular feast it was. It may have been the feast of Passover. Which commemorates the deliverance of uh, Israel out of Egypt. Or it may have been the, fe- the feast of Purim which celebrated the deliverance of the Jews from the plot of Haman. It would make a lot of sense for Jesus to deliver this paralyzed man from his affliction on the occasion of a feast which celebrates deliverance. Verse two indicates the place of this miracle, Bethesda. Actually, that word in the Hebrew So Hebrew word actually means house of mercy, which is certainly an appropriate place to perform a miracle of healing. Verse tells us it was near the sheep market. Notice the word markets in italics. It could have been near the sheep gate. The sheep sheep gates were in the same area. Read uh, Nehemiah chapter three, verse one. And uh, you can go there today. And if you go there today, you'll see that they, they've excavated the pools and the, pool, and the excavation has uncovered five porches or five porticos or five covered colonnades, which confirm the accuracy of the description given here in verse 2. The, there are four porches around the four sides of the pool. There's one that goes across the middle, actually. Actually, there's two pools side by side. Verse 3 tells us who was there. Under the shelter of these porches, there was a, a multitude of people, a miserable group of people. Some were blind. Some were lame. Some had withered limbs. Many of them were absolutely helpless. All of them in an absolutely hopeless situation. Or perhaps we might say they're all, they're all hoping for a miracle. Hoping for the moving of the waters, as it says there in the end of verse 3. Now, verse 4 gives us more detail about why the, the people were there, what, what it's all about. They believed that an angel periodically came down and moved the waters and whoever then st- stepped in first after the waters were troubled, they would be healed. And so there would be this mad rush. To get in first, it was a, a survival of the fittest, which is an incredible irony when you think about it. it As a situation which would have been actually a cruel contest for people who were disabled. Possibly what we're dealing here with is with a superstition. It was what people believed rather than the actual appearance of an angel. So, there's an interpretive issue for, for us to face here. Whether the, whether the text should be read as a, a history of what God was actually doing at Bethesda or as an account of what people mistakenly believed and attributed to him. The fact that so many people were there around the pool of Bethesda waiting for the moving of the waters it suggests that something was going on there, it suggests that perhaps. There were occasions when people may have been healed at Bethesda. Uh, We do know for a fact that there were ancient there were shrines in the ancient world. In Corinth, there was a, a shrine to Asclepius. The word is still used today. Pagan god of healing or god of medicine. There were shrines to these pagan deities, and there is evidence that some people sometimes did receive. A healing at these sites. Furthermore, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, and Luke, uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus speaks about false Christs. He speaks about false prophets who be able to perform signs and wonders, great signs and wonders, and if it's possible, even to deceive the very elect. And so, from a Christian perspective, such healings are possible. Perhaps we can understand them as in terms of lying wonders of satan spoken about in second thessalonians 2 verse 9 but jesus ignores that issue completely i want you to notice that that jesus healing of this man took place totally apart from the pool totally apart from the pool and i think jesus true miracle here exposed the the, the phenomena for what it was a grotesque lottery perhaps offering bogus healings to the the first and the fastest to get into the water. And so it was was continually preying upon the desperation of chronically ill people, the impotent, the blind, the halt, the withered. What is it that causes chronic illness? What is it that causes all the pain and suffering in the world? The Bible tells us That the world is not as God created it. When God created it, it was very good. There was no death. There wasn't even any sickness. These things came about as a result of sin. Therefore, we should not allow the calamities of life to make us angry at God. Rather, we should be angry at sin. J.C. Ryle says, when we read about this case of sicknesses like this, we should remember how deeply we ought to hate sin. Sin was the original root, the cause and the foundation, sorry, and the fountain of every disease in the world. God did not create man to be full of aches and pains and infirmities. These things are the fruits of the fall. There would have been no sickness had there been no sin. John describes these people here as impotent, some of them. The Greek word is an astheno. It means to be weak or to be without strength. He describes these people as being blind and halt or lame. And withered or paralyzed. And this is an indication to us of the the havoc that sin has wrought in this world. And yet God in his mercy has a plan. To redeem and to restore. Broken, fallen, sinful man. The healing of the infirmities. The healing of such infirmities was one of the promised ministries of God's Messiah. The healing of such illnesses was one of the promises of, was one of the prophecies concerning God's promised Savior. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4 to 6. Say unto them that are of fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come, he will come and save you. Then the, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame leap as an heart or as a deer. And the tongue of the dumb shall sing. And if the people around there at Bethesda in that day knew their Old Testaments, if the religious leaders knew the Old Testament Scriptures, they would have recognised that this one who did this miracle of healing, Jesus, was in fact their Messiah, their Redeemer, their Saviour. Yet, those people were spiritually blind. And if we know our New Testament, we would know that the exact same terms used to describe those afflicted people at the Pool of Bethesda are exactly the same terms used to describe us in our spiritual condition. All unsaved people, all people born in sin, are described by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 6, as being without strength. Astheno, that's that word there. Translated impotent in verse 3. According to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we are all blinded by Satan. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13 tells us. That all who don't walk in God's ways are described as being lame. And sin has made us all barren. And it's not only that we're not fruitful. It's not only that we're fruitless. It's, it's, it's actually that we're lifeless. Dead in trespasses and sins. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. All of us are sinners. Sin has affected Every single one of us. And the physical afflictions of the people described here are clear proof of the sorrows of which Adam's sin has affected us all. Yet physical afflictions are not nearly as serious as the spiritual ones. Because the spiritual ones have eternal consequences. The moving scene that we have here serves as a vivid reminder of the hopelessness of the human condition for all who are without the Saviour. In verse 5, our attention is suddenly focused on one man, a desperate and undoubtedly well-known case around the pool what his ailment was we're not told specifically probably he was lame but we are told that he'd been in that condition for 38 years and probable out of all probably out of all the people that were there he was the most most to be pitied and therefore he was selected 38 years in that condition now we don't know how long he'd been there at the pool of bethesda But doubtless, it was long enough for him to be filled with despair and utter frustration because time and time again, when he thought he had opportunity to get into the ward in order to be healed, someone got there before him and his opportunity vanished. And this is the scene that met the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked that day under the porches of the the house of mercy. So that's the circumstances. Then as we come to verses 6 to 9, we see a confrontation. Confrontation between Jesus and this man. Firstly, there was a question. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus knew how long this man had been in his condition. How Jesus knew that is not stated. No doubt he knew through the exercise of his omniscience. But then Jesus goes on to ask a crucial question. Second part of verse 6. He says to this man, he asked the question, Wilt thou be made whole? Now that question was necessary because in that day, there were a lot of people who made a fairly lucrative living of, of begging of others. And they didn't necessarily really want to give it up. But this man replied that he didn't lack the desire to be healed. He simply lacked the means to be healed. Without strength of himself, without the help of others, he had no means of getting into the water. He tried before without success. Jesus asked him, "Wilt thou be made whole? And in coming to this man and Jesus standing before him, Jesus asking him this question, Jesus does, with that question, he does three things. Firstly, he fastens that man's attention upon himself. He starts a conversation with this man, talking about this man's wholeness. This is something that Jesus is interested in. He lets this man know that he, Jesus, is interested in his wholeness. This is something that Jesus is prepared to address with this man. Jesus focuses attention upon himself. Secondly, by asking the question, Jesus deepens within this man feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. The question emphasises the fact that this is something the man can't do, do do by his own power. The question is: Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? The, the question implies that this. That there's there's nothing the man can do about it himself. And it's something that has to be done to him. Do you want this to be done to you? And then thirdly, by this question, Jesus arouses within this man's despondent heart the hope. The hope that there may be a cure. It's within reach if he wants it. The question is asked to him. It's put to his... He he, he needs to reply to it. It's almost like a, a solution is right there for the taking. Do you want to be made whole? Now we all come into the world spiritually crippled. We're all damaged by sin. We're all unable to achieve God's purpose for our life unless something is done to make us spiritually whole. And the good news is that this same Lord Jesus Christ who healed this man, the same Lord Jesus Christ can spiritually heal all those who, Who come to him and would desire it of him. Jesus would focus our attention upon him. Spiritual weakness. That's that's the problem that we have. Spiritual wholeness is a need that we have. But we don't have the power to do anything about that ourselves. He offers us the same hope. The same question he puts before us. Wilt thou be made whole? Jesus asks us. And on the basis of Jesus healing this man of his physical infirmity. We are assured that Jesus has the power. Jesus has the power to make us spiritually whole. I want you to notice several aspects of the question that actually parallels every lost person's confrontation with the gospel. Firstly, Jesus asks the question. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus seeks out this man. It's not the other way around. He is the good shepherd who goes looking for the sheep. He is the one who's come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus is the one who comes from heaven to us. And by his Holy Spirit, he pleads with us. He is the one who takes the initiative. Secondly, the question also implies human responsibility. Although he's the one who comes to us taking the initiative, he comes seeking and searching for us. There is a human responsibility as well. He puts it back on the man. Are you willing? Do you want this? Is this something we want? Are we willing for Jesus to save us? We are the ones that have to make the decision. We are the ones who have to make the choice to allow him to save us or not. And then thirdly, it exposes our inability to save ourselves. As this man's response clearly indicated. He says, Lord, I can't do it on my own. You ask me, do I want to be healed? I can't do it on my own. I can't save myself. I need someone to help me. I need someone to save me. And it's exactly the same for us. By asking us the question, do you want to be made whole? The emphasis, it's emphasising the fact that we cannot save ourselves. Unless someone, unless Jesus would do that for us. And fourthly, I want you to notice that Jesus offers complete, not partial, deliverance. Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? You're broken. You're greatly afflicted. There's, there's, you're not what you're supposed to be. What, what you were created to, to be. Is not what you are. You're incomplete. There are things missing. There's a major component missing. Do you long to be restored? Do you want to be made whole? Today the gospel message goes out to a, a broken and sinful world. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus comes to us. Asking us the question. Do we want to be made whole? And then he waits for your answer. He waits for our answer. Now, if we listen to this man's answer in verse 7, we can see that the object of this man's faith was in others. He hoped that others would help him. And ultimately, he was also trusting in the supposed powers of the pool. His hope of salvation, as best he knew, was a misplaced faith and human effort. That was That was was his salvation. A misplaced faith and human effort. And the ineffectiveness of that formula had been all too obvious for 38 years. And today we understand that there are some people trying to atone for their sins by trying to do that which is right. And they're relying on human effort or a combination of of a misplaced faith and works. Trying to trust in something else. Like this man was trying to trust in something else. He was trying to trust in people, people that would help him. He was trusting in the waters that this might save him. And a lot of people also have similarly misplaced faith. Trusting in this or trusting in that, hoping in this. If something something would happen or if someone would help me in this way, this would be my salvation. Consequently, nothing changes. There's a lot that's implied in Jesus' question. And there's a lot that's involved in the command that Jesus then gives in verse 8. Jesus said unto him, rise, take up thy bed and walk. Unlike many of the other miracles that Jesus did, this miracle contains no demand by Jesus for faith in order that the miracle might proceed. This miracle also contains no revelation concerning himself. This man didn't even know who Jesus was at the time nor after. This was simply a sovereign act of physical healing on Jesus' part. And yet, the man had to respond to the Lord if he wanted to be healed. Jesus asked him the question, do you want to be made whole? Then Jesus gives him this command, verse 8. Jesus saith unto him, rise, take up thy bed and walk. And this is a great illustration to us if we interpret it correctly. If we are to be saved, if a person is to be saved, if we're to to have our sins forgiven, if we're to to be made spiritually whole, then we have to respond to the command that the Lord gives us, which is what? Acts chapter 17 verse 30. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. To repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Repent. That's the command of God. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from false hope. Turn away from false faith. Turn away from self effort. Turn to Christ. Believe in Christ as your only hope of salvation. Trust in him and him alone. Rely on Christ alone. And every person, the invitation goes out. This is the response. And every person's response to that command means the difference between life and death, the difference between heaven and hell. Verse 9 tells us that the physical cure in this case was instantaneous and it was complete. Verse 9, immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And there wasn't any thought of relapse because this man not only carried himself, he carried his bed and verse 10 tells us that he was cured and that is in the perfect tense in the Greek which means that uh, having been cured, the cure continued on and on and on and on and on. Now this miracle would have caused no problem except verse 9. The end of verse 9 says that it occurred on the Sabbath day. Now Jesus could have easily come a day earlier and he could have easily come a day later. The man would have been there. But the timing was designed to get the attention of the religious leaders. Later on in John chapter 9 Jesus would deliberately heal a blind man on the Sabbath day. Again, it was designed to get the attention of the religious leaders. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had created a long list of things that they said were prohibited on the Sabbath day. And in their mind, they said that carrying a bed was one of the things prohibited on the Sabbath day. And so instead of rejoicing with this man over the wonderful deliverance 38 years paralyzed, now he's healed. Instead of rejoicing with the man over this wonderful deliverance, the religious leaders condemned him for carrying his bed on the Sabbath day and therefore breaking their law. And so the controversy begins. Verses 10 to 27. Actually, there are three controversies here. The first one is between the Jews and the man. Verse 10 says, the Jews therefore said unto the man that was cured, it is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Now the term the Jews there refers to the religious leaders. Since this man had been around that pool for a very long time, his situation must have been well known. And we would have thought that the religious leaders would have been glad as this man was fully recovered. But their traditions meant more to them than people. You can't carry a bed on the Sabbath day, they said. They accused the man of breaking the law. But the truth is he did no such thing. God's law about the Sabbath prohibited them from carrying on the Sabbath only those burdens that related to business or commercial enterprise or commercial gain. But the problem was not with this man the problem actually was with the religious leaders because they had distorted the law of God that they professed to revere and by distorting the law they missed the saviour by distorting the law they, they missed the miracle and this is what happens this is what happens When many religious people become so preoccupied with the traditions of men, they fail to see the plain truth of God. Over the years, the Jewish leaders had amassed hundreds and hundreds of man-made rules and regulations concerning the Sabbath. By Jesus' day, they had invented 39 different classifications of work. And each classification of work had a multitude of things attached to it that you could and couldn't do. I want to quote from the Mishnah. The main classes of work are 40 save one. Sewing. Okay, one classification of work. And then stacks and stacks of things about sewing that you weren't allowed to do. Ploughing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleaning crops, grinding, shifting, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning it, making two loops. Weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot. It's a classification of work and so many things about tying knots. You can't tie a knot on the Sabbath day. You can't loosen a knot. You can't sew two stitches. You can't tear two stitches. You can't hunt a gazelle or slaughter or flay or salt it or cure its skin. You can't cut it up. You can't write two letters. That is two letters of the alphabet. You can't even rub one out to write another one. You can't put out a fire. Bad luck if it starts. You can't light a fire. You can't strike a hammer. You can't carry something from one domain to another. These are the main classes of work. 40 save one. This man here, he did not break God's law. He violated man-made traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. All these things that had grown up around the law. He didn't break God's law. What these religious leaders were doing, they were merely using this charge against this this man as a means to get to Jesus. And so they they want him to identify who the healer is. Now this man, he didn't know who Jesus' name was at that moment. He couldn't point him out in the crowd Because it says in verse 13 that Jesus had already conveyed himself away. He was lost to view amongst the crowd of people there. Then the second controversy was between Jesus and the man. Verse 14 says, Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now this command here indicates that there seems to be some specific sin on this man's part that contributed to his illness. It may be that he was injured while he was committing some crime. Now we know we've already established that sickness is not always the direct result of any personal specific sin. It's what happens to a fallen, fallen creation and yet in some cases... Some injuries, some damage is is caused by sin, particularly, yes. And apparently it was in this case. And so Jesus warns this man that should he refuse to address the issue of sin in his life, then a worse thing may happen to him. Now, obviously, what he received from Jesus at the pool was the healing of his body. But at that moment, it was not the salvation of his soul. So Jesus warns this man that he's in danger. Something worse may happen. What could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? A lifetime of paralysis? Maybe not that. There are some things that are worse than a lifetime of paralysis. There is a lost eternity. There is hell that awaits those who are unrepentant. Beloved, yes, there's something worse than physical lameness. There's something worse than physical affliction. There's something worse than physical disabilities. Jesus himself said in another place, he says, If your eye offend you, if your hand offend you, if your foot offend you, cut it off. It's better. Pluck it out. It's better to enter into eternal life disabled than to perish in hell in a perfectly healthy condition. Jesus had healed this man's body. But at this point in time, there's no evidence that any work of grace has been done in his soul. And so Jesus is warning this man. And Jesus warning this man is a call to, for him to repent and to believe. And so to escape in time and eternity the judgment of God upon his sins. Verse 15 tells us that the man then reported to the Pharisees that it was Jesus who had healed him. Possibly he feared for his own safety since he had been charged with violating the Sabbath. So he tries to put the blame back onto Jesus. It's not so easy to understand the relationship between Jesus and this man. As we said, Jesus didn't heal him as in response to his faith, like he did with some other people. Jesus didn't say to this man, your sins are forgiven, like he had said to some other people. This man is typical of any desperate person who needs help to get their miserable life fixed. And they'll even try God, they'll accept something from God, they'll accept help from God. But then when they receive it, they're happy just to take it and run. And many people like that remember Jesus healed ten lepers. And nine of them were happy to take it and run. Only one of them returned to Jesus to give thanks and to bow and to worship. And at this point, there's no evidence that this man believed on Christ and was converted. You know, we can't say that he was actively against Christ. We can't say he was opposed to Jesus. In fact, this man didn't even know it was Jesus who healed him until he met Jesus later in the temple. But it does seem a strange thing, does it not, that this man didn't actively seek out Jesus and seek a closer relationship with him. We'd expect that to be the case. Actually, verse 14 tells us, actually, Jesus went looking for him again. And sought opportunity to speak with him again. He's going after his soul this time goes after him with this warning, stop sinning, turn. Otherwise, something worse will happen. You see, Jesus isn't merely interested in the healing of the body. He is interested in that. But he's also more interested in the healing of the soul. Healing our soul from sin. And maybe this is the controversy that you have with Jesus tonight. Maybe this is your controversy to him, with him. Perhaps like this man, you acknowledge you need help perhaps like this man you'll even accept the help that God gives you but receiving the help maybe you're you're not interested at all in giving up your sin and if that's your case even even as Jesus issued a strong warning to this man we would repeat that strong warning to you this evening you've got to deal with the issue of sin you've got to resolve the issue of sin Jesus has come to seek and to save those who are lost in sin And we receive blessings from God every day. The food that we receive, it's, it's, it's a miracle that he disposed upon us each day. A lot of us just take it and run. Thank you, God, for your blessing, but don't ask me to deal with sin. God blesses us bodily, physically. He's concerned about that, but he's more concerned about our souls. Jesus died upon the cross to save us from the sin which afflicts our souls. third and final controversy is between the Jews and Jesus. Verse 16 says that the leaders openly attempted to kill Jesus laying the blame for the Sabbath violation on him. But notice Jesus' response in verse 17. Jesus answered them My father worketh hitherto and I work. Jesus is making two main points in this. Firstly, since God continually works for good in the universe, continually. Jesus said, therefore, it is proper that I continue to work good too. And that would include working on the Sabbath. Sabbath. Having finished his work of creation in six days, we know God rested on the Sabbath day. The seventh day, that was the Sabbath. However, we know that sin entered into the world and there's a very real sense in which God's rest was disturbed. And then he went to work ceaselessly, bringing men and women back into fellowship with himself. He went to work providing a a means of redemption. He sends out the gospel message every day. He sends out the gospel to every generation. And so from the time of Adam's fall into sin up until the present time, God continues to work ceaselessly. He's still working. He's at work today. And the same was was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into this world to do the Father's work, to, to do his Father's business, God's love and mercy and grace. This work is continued and it's not confined to six days a week, Jesus says. Secondly, in in claiming equality with his father, sorry, in, in, in claiming to work equally with his father, as the father works, I work. The father works on the Sabbath day, I work on the Sabbath. We don't cease doing good just because of the Sabbath day. In claiming to work equally with his father, Jesus was claiming equality with God. He made himself equal with God. That was a clear claim that he's made. And that claim was clearly understood by the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 18 shows us they understood exactly what he was saying. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him. Because not only had he broken the Sabbath in their mind, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. You know, this is one of the claims that we hear. You know, by by, by skeptics, they say, "Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God," which is incorrect. If Jesus wasn't claiming to be God here, and people thought that he did mistakenly, he would have corrected their misunderstanding. But he didn't correct any misunderstanding on their part. As a matter of fact, he just goes on and on and on in the verses that follow, in, to make in, in even more positive terms. That he indeed is one with the Father, equal with the Father. As a matter of fact, his whole reason for healing this man on the Sabbath day was to get to the point of having this conversation with these people and saying what he's about to say about his own identity in his own mission. He claims equality with the Father in seven particulars. Verse 19. He and the Father, he says, are equal in working. Equal in working. Whatever the Father works, this is the work that I do. Whatsoever the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. The work that the Father does, the work that the Son does, it's one and the same. We work together. We are the same. We work together. There's equality in working. Secondly, in verse 20, the Father and Son are equal in knowing. The father loveth the son and showeth him all things that he himself doeth. Everything that the father knows and does, he's told the son. The son knows all that the father knows and does. There's equality in knowing. Thirdly, there's equality in resurrecting. Verse 21, verse 28, verse 29. As the father raiseth up the dead, so the son raises up quickeneth who he wills the father will raise who he wills the son raises who he wills there's an equality there in resurrecting fourthly there's they are equal in judging verse 22 and verse 27 for the father judgeth no man but hath committed all judgment under the son okay we know we know that god exercises judgment but does it through his son the judgment of the son is the judgment of the father the father and the son are one for the son to execute the judge it's the judgment of the father there's equality in judging fifthly in verse 23 father and son are equal in honor that all men should honor the son even as they honor the father sixthly in verses 24 and 25 They are equal in regenerating. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me is passed from death unto life. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Believe on the Father and there's regeneration. Believe on the voice of the Son of God and there's life regeneration. And then number seven. Completion, perfection, the number seven. Seven, they are equal in self-existence. Verse 26. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Jesus is making it very clear. Jesus is God. Jesus is the omnipotent God. He is able to save all that come to him. He has the power and he is full of mercy. And he asked the question, Wilt thou be made whole? He has the power to do it. He has the mercy to do it. He asks the question. And what's your answer? You have to decide. And your, de- your decision of, determines your destiny. You know, as we get to the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 20, John tells us this. I'll paraphrase it for you. He says... He said, Jesus did many other miracles that I haven't recorded in this book of John. He says, but the ones that I have recorded, like the one here in John chapter five, the ones that I have recorded, I've written them down so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing in him, you have life through his name. This is the reason why John wrote his gospel. This is the reason why we have John chapter 5. This is the reason why Jesus did this miracle. is recorded for us so that we would know that Jesus is the son of God. He is God the son. And that believing in him we have life. The choice is ours. The decision is ours. Titus chapter 3, there's that verse. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Because we don't have the power to do it we're impotent can't do anything to please God not by works of righteousness which we have done like this man here John 5 can't do anything to save ourselves not by works of righteousness that we've done but according to his mercy he saves us he has the power he has the ability we don't have it at all he has the power he's God the God the son he has the power And the truth in Titus chapter 3 is wonderfully illustrated here in the miracle of John chapter 5. Not only is it wonderfully illustrated in the miracle of John chapter 5, but it's also wonderfully taught in a little story that Jesus told us, very, very short. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one's a Pharisee, the other's the publican. He said, the Pharisee prayed like this, he said, God, I thank you that I am righteous. And his prayer wasn't heard. But Jesus said, then there was this publican. Who couldn't lift up his eyes towards heaven but said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, he's the all-powerful one. He is the all-powerful one. We're the sinner. We're the impotent one. Unable to save ourselves. Cannot do anything. We have God, the all-powerful one. We are the weak ones. And yet God, this all-powerful one, he, he will show mercy. He will show mercy to those who come humbly. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He he will do it. He will do it. John chapter 5 tells us he'll do it. Titus chapter 3 tells us he'll do it. This story that Jesus told here tells us he will do it. All powerful, God will condescend to show mercy to sinners like us if we'll have it, if we desire to be made whole. Will you pray like this sinner? God, be merciful. Please, Lord, show your mercy towards me in saving my soul, in forgiving my sin. Jesus says that man went home justified. God heard his prayer. God will hear your prayer. If you acknowledge that God and God alone, Jesus Christ and Christ alone has the ability to save you and you're willing to trust him, then he will save you. He will save you here and now. Even as you listen to this, as the, the truth of God's word penetrates your heart, as the light shines you, you see, you understand. At, that, at this moment, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I do pray. I, I hope and I pray that you do that this evening. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. It's, it's, it's one story about your wonderful plan of redemption, saving broken sinful people like us I uh, thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came to us to seek and to save that which was lost thank you he's a good shepherd who goes looking for the sheep and Lord there's many people here tonight uh, who rejoice because uh, the good shepherd found us brought us back into the fold forgiven our sin declared us righteous welcomed us into your family Made us heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Safe and secure forevermore. Many people here like that, Lord, we rejoice this evening. Uh, Truly today is a day of thanksgiving. But Lord, our prayer, our concern is for perhaps someone here tonight uh, who doesn't know the forgiveness of sin yet. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'd open their eyes. Lord, help help them to see that Jesus is the saviour that they need. And Jesus will save them. He has the power. He has the mercy. Uh, He will save them. If they are willing to trust in him. To turn to him and trust in him. Uh, Lord I do pray that that there would be some who would uh, obey that command of the Lord Jesus tonight. uh, To repent and believe the gospel. Lord please do this work. In someone's heart tonight we pray in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.